read through the Old Testament, God continues to show us his plans and his purposes. He orchestrates movements as we read the Old Testament. He works and he prepares to bring about the greatest miracle that the world has ever seen, and that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is when God became man. The Old Testament ends 400 years before the birth of Christ, and for 400 years, God was completely silent. There was no word from God. There were no prophets that were sent. No one spoke for God during that time. But it's not as if God was uninterested and didn't care what was happening in this world because God was waiting for the perfect time and the perfect place in his own time when he would bring this Savior into the world. After 400 years, God once again spoke. And the book of Hebrews tells us about this. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Matthew's gospel introduces Jesus, the one through whom God spoke. This is the first written record of his life. This book comes first in the New Testament canon of Scripture. It's the most comprehensive of the Gospels that were written. There's more of Jesus' life here and more of his teachings than in any other Gospel. It's the longest of the Gospels. It's the most evangelistic of them all. And so if you really want to find out who Jesus is, what he came into this world to do, the things that Jesus taught... Matthew is the place that we go, the Gospel of Matthew. So this is a very important study. This is going to occupy us for quite some time into the future on Sunday mornings. And we're going to learn about what Matthew has to say and records the words of Jesus as we learn about his life. Now I'd like you to stand with me this morning as we read the opening verses of this Gospel. Gospel means the good news. And although... These first verses that we're going to read today may seem to be very mundane and might even seem uninteresting, and yet they're very important to us. It helps us to understand and it establishes the rights and the privileges of Jesus Christ. So we're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1. And bear with me as we read a list of names here. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Thamar, and Phares begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasson, and Naasson begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rachab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa. And Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. And Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias. And Ezekias begat Manasseh. And Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias. Are you with me here? And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. 
And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salatiel, and Salatiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad. And Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, you might make a note in your Bible there if you're used to underlining things or circling things. This comes down, the reading comes down to Mary and Joseph. It says, who begat whom? But we notice here that it does not say when it comes to Joseph that Joseph begat Jesus. It says that Joseph was born of Mary, or Jesus, rather, was born of Mary. Verse number 17, so all the generations... From Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And though we've read a list of names, and maybe it doesn't mean very much to us right now, and we don't understand what this is all about, And yet it's very important as Matthew begins this book to show us who Jesus really is. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who came into the world. And as we consider his birth throughout the month of December, Lord, help us to understand it better and to appreciate so much more Jesus coming into the world to die for our sins. Bless in this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you may be wondering about the title of my message today. I call this message, A Bridge to Somewhere. In our past elections, you may remember that Sarah Palin was accused of uh, misappropriations or misdeeds in an Alaskan pork barrel project that they called A Bridge to Nowhere. And they called it that because it was a bridge that went to no place that was significantly important. Well, today's message, though is a bridge to somewhere because Matthew brings us from the Old Testament, a bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Here we have the hope of the Messiah that's explained to us. The Old Testament ended with the Messiah had not yet come. He was promised, but he was not yet here. And then the New Testament begins with Matthew, and it's the perfect bridge that takes us into that Old Testament and all those promises that God made, and it's a bridge that will take us somewhere. It's not a bridge that ends abruptly. There's no plunge at the end of this to a place that contains no promise, but God brings us to his somewhere, and that is the revelation of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, you may be wondering today, how is he going to make a message out of 16 verses of names? And I thought the same thing. How am I going to do this? But really, you don't need to worry. I'm going to talk a little bit about those names later in just a few minutes. I'm not going to give you the story of each of these names because uh, we would be here the rest of the afternoon. But I want to begin today by talking about the man who wrote this book. So number one, I want to talk to you about the recorder of the gospel. Who wrote the gospel of Matthew? That seems obvious to us that it must have been someone who is named Matthew because the book is called the book of Matthew. And there's some argument about it. Uh, There's some people who don't believe that 
Matthew, the disciple of Christ, is one who wrote this book. But we do believe that there's enough evidence here, there's enough evidence in church writings that we accept the traditional authorship. It was Matthew, someone who was a disciple of Jesus. He knew Christ. This is not someone who wrote years after the events happened and heard it told by someone else. He was there. He experienced many of the things that he wrote in this book. He heard the words of Jesus as he spoke. Now, Matthew was a disciple, but he wasn't a very prominent disciple. There's not very much written in the Word of God about him. We don't know very much. And uh, it's kind of odd that if Matthew was not the writer of the gospel, that someone would falsely claim that he was because he's not a well-known person. I want you to notice in your King James Bibles, and I I hope you do have a King James with you today, that the title of the book in many of our King James Bibles says, The Gospel According to St. Matthew. The King James translators actually followed the Roman Catholic tradition by naming this book, and they called him St. Matthew. Well, there's nothing wrong with that because Matthew was a saint, only he wasn't a saint because the Roman Catholics determined that he was so. He was a saint in the, in the same sense that you are a saint today. That is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You don't have to wait until you die, and you don't have to wait until someone says some hocus-pocus over you and makes you into a saint. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. The titles of the Old Testament books that we have, books like Joshua and and Ruth and Samuel and Nehemiah, Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, they could just as well have been called St. Ruth and St. Isaiah, St. Jeremiah, St. Daniel or whatever, because those, those people were also saints. So don't get thrown off by the title of the book to think that Matthew is to be revered above any other Christian because he holds some special place or some special title in heaven. He was a saint, just like you are a saint. So who was Matthew? Well, I said we don't know very much about him, but there is something in the Bible said about him. One thing that we know, first of all, that he was a dreaded tax man. A dreaded tax man. Matthew does not speak of himself in the first person throughout this book, but he does reveal some information about himself in the ninth chapter in verse number 9. It says there, And as Jesus passed forth from thence... He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Mark and Luke both record the same incident, and there they call him Levi. Matthew and Levi are the same person, and the occupation that he had was that of a tax man. He collected Roman taxes. Now, most of you probably don't like the Internal Revenue, And uh, one of the most dreaded letters that you can get is when you see in that return area of the envelope, it says the IRS or the Internal Revenue Service on that. Most of us don't like the Internal Revenue. You might have heard that story about a man who attended church and he heard a sermon that was very convicting to him. The preacher was preaching and was telling about how that we should honor our government he was talking about the words of Christ where Jesus said, render under Caesar the thing, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he became very convicted about that message. That night he went home and he was very restless. He was tossing and he was turning. He couldn't sleep. And so he got up because of his conviction and he wrote a letter to the IRS. And he said, I'm enclosing $200 for the taxes that I cheated on and didn't pay. 
And then he wrote a little P.S. underneath that. He said, if I still can't sleep, I'll send in the rest. (laughs) Well, Matthew's job was that... You'll get it here in a minute. Matthew's job was that of a tax collector. And if you think that you don't like the IRS, you really can't even touch the feelings that the people had in the time of Jesus for someone who who helped the Roman government collect their taxes. So he was that dreaded tax man, but he was also a despised traitor. Tax collectors are called publicans in the Bible. And they're Jews that were hired by Rome to collect the Roman taxes. See, the Romans, or the Jews rather, hated the Roman occupation. And anybody that would dare help the Romans against their own people, they couldn't stand them. And so uh, they helped these Romans collect that taxes. And these publicans, now that's not republicans, but it's the publicans, they were extortioners. And one of the things that they would do to make extra money is they would overcharge for those taxes and collect more than was actually owed. So when they charged more, they would pay the Roman government what was due them, and then they would take the extra money and keep it for themselves. And so those tax collectors became very wealthy. Uh, They were hated because of that overcharging. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he became a very wealthy person. So the Jews hated tax collectors because they were dishonest, they were cheats, they were traitors to their country. And that's the kind of man that Matthew was. But we also know this about him, that he became one of the designated 12. Matthew was one of those original 12 disciples of Jesus. There we read just a moment ago in the ninth chapter, Jesus came to him and he said, follow me. And we saw that Matthew immediately got up from the receipt of custom. He stopped that job that he was doing. He gave up the well-paying job and he decided to follow after Jesus and he became a disciple. And that is so much like Jesus. We'll see it over and over again as we study in this book of Matthew that Jesus does not care who you are. He doesn't care where you came from. Jesus will save the most despised, the wicked, the worst of the worst. Jesus will save anyone who comes to him in faith. Not only did Jesus save him, but Matthew became one of the foundational building blocks of the Lord's church. The scripture says that the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So Matthew is not one who has much to say about himself. He's humble enough that he doesn't write great things about his accomplishments. But we have this gospel preserved for us today because he was a faithful person. He followed Christ. His name is known. And that's a little bit that we know about the recorder of the gospel. Now, the next thing that I want you to see, we're kind of given an overview here of the book of Matthew. Number two is the record of the Christ. Now, let's go back to what's written. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Christ. We read that just a moment ago. And there are some people who read that, and though it comes to their mind, it's just boring. A list of names, that's boring. Why would you read that? J. Vernon McGee tells a story about a chaplain who gave out thousands of New Testaments to GIs during World War II. And the chaplain lamented over the fact because when he handed those New Testaments to the soldiers, he watched them as they would begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. They would read just a few verses and they would get very discouraged. And they would lay the Bible aside and they wouldn't touch it again. And they would think, well, this book is not a book for me. 
And when you read the Bible, you might feel that way sometimes. You come across all of the names that are in the Bible. There are those lists that are in Numbers and, and First Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. And you begin to read that and you think, how boring this is. This can't be something that's good for me. But what Matthew says in these opening verses is hugely important because what he's doing here is establishing a link between Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. The Jews knew that the Christ, and that word Messiah, remember this, is just a a Greek equivalent of the word Christ. They knew that the Messiah would come and that he would come from the family of David. So Matthew begins tracing Jesus to David, and further he links him as the Savior to the entire world because he takes him back to Abraham. Abraham was the father of many nations. He's called the father of the faithful. Jew and Gentile alike, Abraham is the father, and he represents all families of the earth who believe in the promises that God put into his word. Now, the Jews were very concerned about a person's lineage, You may remember that when the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, they checked those men who were to be put into the priesthood. And unless they could prove their ancestry, they couldn't serve in the temple of God. They had to be able to produce the record because if they hadn't, they would be disqualified. And the very same same thing is true of Jesus. He had to be qualified. There had to be a record of his heritage. And if Jesus could not prove his descent from David if he couldn't prove that he was a rightful heir to the throne of David, then he would be dismissed immediately as a candidate for being the Messiah. Now, it's interesting that the Jews rejected Jesus on many different bases, but we never find in the Word of God where they rejected him on the basis of his ancestry. He could prove that. They knew that. And so Matthew begins with the record of his ancestry to prove to us that Jesus truly is the king. So he shows us, first of all, that Jesus has a right to the throne. Now, this particular genealogy shows us that Jesus has a right to the legal aspects of the throne. He's a legal heir to the throne. Find another genealogy in the book of Luke. It's for a little different purpose. But this proves his legal, uh, uh, legal right to take David's throne. You know, there's some people who are very interested in their genealogy for the sake of curiosity. I mean, they want to find out, is, is there someone that I'm related to that was famous? So they go back and they look through all their, their ancestors and they find out, am I related to somebody like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? Or is there somebody great that's in my family tree? That's not Matthew's purpose. He, he's not looking at this as a matter of curiosity. This is to establish without doubt that Jesus has a right to the throne. He can rightly be called the Messiah. Now, it's also important for us to understand that Jesus is the only one who could have fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies that are written. There aren't just one or two things that are written about Jesus or about the Messiah in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of things that are written, and Jesus is the only one who perfectly fits all of those. I don't have time to rehearse them all now, of course, We're going to get into some of those as we talk about his birth in the coming weeks. But one of those prophecies, if you remember, was concerning the place of his birth. And so when Jesus was born, the wise men came to Herod and and they inquired, where is this this king of the Jews? Where is he going to be born? And so so Herod asked 
the prophets. He asked the elders, rather. He asked the, the, the chief priests in the synagogues and the temple. And he asked them, where is the Christ going to be born? Where is this king? And they looked it up in the scripture and they found out that the Bible says that he would born, be born in Bethlehem. And so when Herod started to look for Jesus, that's the first place that he went. He went to Bethlehem because Jesus was born there exactly as the scripture said. Now, one of the remarkable things about the preservation of the genealogy of Christ is that now, today, we know that there could be no one who can claim to be the Messiah. The Jews are still looking for a Messiah. They rejected Christ. They didn't accept him as the Messiah. But today, still looking for one who could possibly prove that they could meet the same criteria that Jesus met, that he is a descendant of David. It can't be done today. And that's because in A.D. 70, the Romans came into Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they destroyed all of the records that were there. And so now there is no person who could possibly trace his ancestry back to King David. Jesus is the only one who could do that today. So if someone claimed to be the Messiah, the only way that we could believe them is if they were able to produce their credentials. But no one but Jesus is able to do it. No one today can do it. The Matthew also shows us that that Jesus was recognized as a king. There, There were times that he was recognized as the king. He's the only gospel writer who records the story about the wise men. Those wise men that made that long journey from the east. They came to visit Jesus and they brought with them... Presents They brought with them things that were fit for a king, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And Herod asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Matthew goes on to speak about John the Baptist. John the Baptist declared, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why did John the Baptist say that? Because the king of heaven was there. Jesus came to the earth. And so when John said, repent, he said, because Christ is here. The one who is the king of all heaven is here. When Jesus began his public ministry, you remember the last week of his ministry? That he entered into Jerusalem. And the people laid palm branches in the way as Jesus came into the city. And they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that was an admission that Jesus was a king from the house of David. Hosanna is a word that means save us, we pray. And so they thought, at least in that time, that he could indeed be their king. And then when Jesus was crucified, what was it that Pilate put on the cross? He put a sign over the cross and the writing was, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, the chief priest said, no, don't write that. Write that he said that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I've written, I have written. He was recognized as a king. There was also recognition of his kingship when he died on that cross because the Bible also tells us that there was an earthquake. There were dead bodies that came out of their graves. The veil in the temple was torn in two. And there was a centurion who stood at the foot of the cross and saw it all and others with him who said, truly, this was the Son of God. And so who was he? He's the Christ. The record is right here in this book. He is the king. And then also we find in the record that we are related to him by faith. Well, that's a wonderful thing. 
This is an important genealogy that we have in the beginning of the book. It establishes his rights to show that he's a king. This is proof of his ancestry. But if we were to extend the record of the writings here, the genealogy beyond verse number 16, what will we find there? We wouldn't find any earthly ancestors of Jesus. But friends, there certainly are spiritual ones. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you are related to him. And you may not know if there's really anyone who's famous in your genealogy, but I promise you this, in your spiritual genealogy, there most certainly is because you are a child of the King. You're a child of God Almighty. You are the friend and the brother of Jesus Christ. His royal blood flows through your veins. And so that means that you are an heir to all things that Jesus possesses. There is no record that is important as this one that your name is preserved in the hallowed halls of heaven. God says that your name is written down. It was written down before the foundation of the world. And he also tells us this, that this is a record, your name's written down, that can never be destroyed. The Jews came and, or Romans came and destroyed the Jewish records, but no one will ever mar this record because God himself says, I have your names graven On the palms of my hands, there is no record as great as that one. If you're a child of God, a believer in Jesus Christ, you have your names written down. So Matthew is the recorder of the gospel. We have things here written concerning the record. But there are also some other things that we find in the book of Matthew. Number three, we find the rejection of the Messiah. Matthew's gospel also tells us that Christ was rejected. Over and over, the story of Christ is a story of rejection. As I said, there is no challenge to his genealogy. The record is clear. His ancestry can be proven. He has the right to David's throne, but still, he was rejected. And we see then that he was rejected at his birth. Herod made those overtures to the wise men that he would come and that he would worship Jesus. But we know that Herod was untruthful about that. He had no desire to worship him. He wanted no rivals to his throne. And so his intent was to kill Jesus right after he was born. But God in his perfect providence preserved the child. Now the royal line had been preserved all the way down through the Old Testament. There are many, many different stories we find of protections for the kings that, that would be in the line of Jesus Christ. And so God protected this child. The Spirit of God was upon him. He preserved him in his birth because Christ must sit on that throne. And so there was an angel that came and warned those wise men, go home a different way. Herod seeks the life of the child. And so the Spirit of God protected Jesus in his birth, but he was rejected. Secondly, we find that he was rejected in his boyhood. I I don't know what it must have been like growing up in the family of Jesus. Contrary to the doctrine of the Roman Catholics, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Jesus had brothers and sisters. And and they, they, they were brothers and sisters who came from the same mother, but they didn't have the same father, of course. Matthew tells us in chapter 13, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Well, how does a brother or sister live with a perfect sibling? I mean, what do you do when you have a brother or sister that you can't blame for anything? They've never done anything wrong. I mean, he was a perfect child. 
Surely somebody must have noticed that. His brothers and and sisters and others around, they must have seen. There's something unusual about him. He's not an ordinary child. He never does anything wrong. But nevertheless, the Scripture says they didn't believe on him. When Jesus began his public ministry, his brothers and sisters did not believe in him. They rejected him as the Christ. And it wasn't until Jesus was resurrected from the grave The two of his brothers, James and Jude, believed that he truly was the Christ, the Savior of the world. So as a boy, Jesus was rejected. Then thirdly, he was rejected through the Baptist. Now you might be wondering, what do I mean by that? What what does that mean, he's rejected through the Baptist? Well, I didn't say that the Baptists reject him. Some Baptists do, unfortunately. They reject the full complement of his work. But I mean that he was rejected through the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. And he came to be the harbinger of Christ. That means he was the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah into the world. But when John preached that message, when he said to repent because the kingdom was at hand, there are few who believe, but most did not believe the message that he preached. And so just as Israel had rejected the old-time prophets that were in the Old Testament, when they were warned to repent, they did not repent And so the Jews rejected the message of John. The chief priests and and the elders did not believe that message, and so their fate was sealed just as those Old Testament Jews had their fate sealed. And remember, they rejected the words of God, and so God had them carried away into captivity. The Assyrians came, the Babylonians came, the Romans came. Finally, the walls of Jerusalem were torn down, and the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And it's amazing that Jesus said to them, the Jews of his time, that because of their rejection, the same thing would happen again. And so he looked at that marvelous temple that Herod had erected there, extended the second temple that was built in the time of Zerubbabel. He, he and, and Ezra, Nehemiah, that, that second temple, and Herod extended that. But Jesus looked at that great temple and he said, There shall not be here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And exactly as Jesus said, the temple was destroyed. And then fourthly, he was rejected even by believers. When it came down to the moment of his death, Jesus was rejected. And of course, we know that those who didn't believe in him rejected him. They mocked him and they spat upon him. They demanded that he would die. But one thing that we would not expect, and that is that those that he had chosen, those that he had saved, those he had called out by his grace, that they also would reject him and deny him. That's what Peter did. Peter denied Christ. The other disciples, when Jesus was crucified, they hung back in the shadows They were afraid to make themselves known. And there was not one of the disciples who made a demonstration. There was no outcry from any follower. No one said, this travesty should be stopped. They didn't do it. And neither did Christ want it. Because his hour had come. The time had come for him to give his life. They didn't take it from him. He gave it willingly. But it is significant that there were no attempts made to save him. Matthew does not even record those last words of that penitent thief on the cross who said to Jesus, you should not even be hanging here because you are the Son of God. You have done no wrong. Matthew doesn't even record that. 
Because Matthew is telling about the rejection of Christ. Rejection, rejection, and even more rejection until you come to the ultimate rejection that he experienced. And that was as he hung there, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so the ultimate rejection that Jesus went through was the rejection of his own father. The heavenly father had to reject his own son as he bore our sins. Well, we think about those things and the rejection in the life of Christ, and we think how horrible, how terrible that was. But that's not all the news that we find. We might think that, well, that part of it is bad news. But the gospel is good news. Matthew records good news because the good news is Jesus took that rejection for everyone who would believe in him. Jesus suffered and died on that cross And we are accepted by the Father on the basis of that sacrifice that Jesus made. He died in the place of vile, guilty sinners so that we could be saved. Matthew records all of that. We're going to study that many, many months down the road. We're going to stand there at the foot of the cross and see Matthew as he describes it. And we'll see those events that took place. But then we're also going to watch as Jesus came back to life. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. The scripture says the grave could not hold him and so the gospel, the good news is complete because Jesus came out of that tomb. But Matthew talks about even more not just that Jesus was raised from the dead but the resurrection of Christ also means that there will be the return of the king. Matthew contains amazing predictions about the second coming of Christ. Now, of course, the first advent, Jesus being born into the world, that's told to us in the book of Matthew. But Jesus had a lot to say about the second time that he was coming. A dead king cannot come back, but a living one can. Jesus came out of the grave and he said, I will come back. So Matthew's gospel is a gospel about the kingdom of Christ. Many have stated that Matthew is a Jewish gospel. It was written to prove the ancestry, as I said, of Jesus, to prove to the Jews that he is truly the Messiah. And what is it that the Jews most desire? Well, it is that there would come that worldwide kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's what they're looking for. So this is a gospel that is a bridge to somewhere. The kingdom didn't die out in the Old Testament because Matthew brings us and crosses that divide to bring us this record of Christ and words about the kingdom. Now, Jesus was rejected in the first advent because they didn't understand that he didn't come to establish his kingdom, a physical kingdom on the earth at that time. But he did tell them there would come a physical kingdom. There would be a kingdom restored to Israel in the future day. The second coming of Christ is for that purpose, and he will do exactly that. He will establish his kingdom. Now, let us note, let's notice very quickly three things as we close the message today. First of all, he will restore the kingdom past. I don't mean it's going to be a kingdom that looks like that old kingdom, but he is going to restore the kingship of David just as Scripture prophesied. He will come and sit on the throne of David in a millennial kingdom. Now, the Old Testament scripture said that David's throne was an everlasting throne. It's, a, it's, an, it's an eternal, everlasting throne. And Jesus is coming again to make that declaration possible, to make it really happen. 
Then secondly, he will rule in the kingdom future. He is the one who's going to sit on that throne. In the 24th chapter it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Now, do you notice in those verses that that promise of the second coming also says that all of the tribes of the earth will mourn? Why is that? Why will they mourn because Jesus comes back? Well, the Bible teaches that prior to his establishment of the kingdom, there will come seven years of terrible tribulation upon the earth. Those that live during that time and die without receiving Christ as their Savior will go into that millennial kingdom where, or they're still living, I should say, when the tribulation ends, they're going to go into that millennial kingdom where Christ will rule all with a rod of iron. It will be an everlasting dominion. Now, he'll reign upon the earth for 1,000 years, And then when that is over, he'll rule in the new heavens and the new earth and in the new Jerusalem for all of eternity. I'm looking for that. I hope that you're looking for it. If you're not saved today, you need to realize who Christ is and trust him as your Savior because if you don't, you'll be just like those he describes in that 24th chapter. You will mourn because of his second coming. You won't rejoice over it. You'll dread the day that Jesus comes back. And so the Bible tells us that the coming of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any time. Jesus said, at an hour that you think not, that's when I'm coming back. And that's why it's so important for us to understand what's written in the Gospel of Matthew, that we believe the words of Jesus. He is coming back. And we don't want to be in the crowd that mourns his coming rather than rejoices because of it. But now there's, there's something else in the book of Matthew. There are great things that speak about the future. If Matthew's gospel is anything, though, it's a practical gospel. It's not just about what things happen, things that will happen in the future, because it is also a gospel more than any other that speaks about us in the present. In this gospel, there's more teaching here about the present. And we're going to see that when we get into the Sermon on the Mount and the many things that Jesus taught in parables. How are we to live in the present? Jesus has a lot to say about it. So finally, one of the things he tells us to do, we must represent him in the kingdom present. We must represent Jesus, our Savior, our King, in the kingdom present. Matthew's gospel is the one that says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so we needn't think that the kingdom of Christ is only past or only future. He has a kingdom now. He has a spiritual kingdom. And those of you that trust him as your savior, you are already in that kingdom. We have citizenship in Christ's kingdom. And so we need to act as we are citizens of that kingdom. Now, since we are in the kingdom, Christ teaches that we should represent him well. The works, Jesus says, that we do should glorify him. And so as a Christian, you are to maintain good works for the kingdom of Christ and also for the king of this kingdom. His name must be glorified. 
So Matthew's gospel is an evangelistic one, and the way that we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ is to proclaim the name of this king to everyone that we know. Let them know that there is an everlasting dominion. There's a king who reigns today. Now let's go back to that very first verse, chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. And again, that predates the the kingdom of David. It goes back to the time when God promised Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations. And what does Paul say about the gospel of Christ? He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that means, just as I preached in last Sunday morning sermons, That this is a gospel for every man, every woman, every child upon the face of the earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And that means Jews and Gentiles alike. And so that means that every person who will trust him can be saved. It's a wonderful gospel. He's a marvelous Savior. And friend, this means today that you can be saved. There, There need not be anyone go away from this place today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as your Savior because he will save anyone who comes to him. Don't go away without Christ. And those of you that are Christians, I encourage you to represent him well. Just as the, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, let your light shine. Give the message that Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That's what Christmas is really all about. It's what the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is about. It's to declare to us that there is a Savior. This is the Gospel of Matthew. It is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I encourage every one of you today to believe that Gospel because this is the only way that you can be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we spend together. We're So thankful that we open up the Gospel of Matthew today and there's so much to learn here about what Jesus came into the world to do. We thank you, Lord, for his birth. He could not become a king. He could not sit upon the throne of David unless he were born into this world. And we thank you, Lord, that you perfectly preserved him and made it possible for him to become the Savior And we thank you, Lord, that he went to cross to die for our sins. I ask you, Lord, you'd speak to hearts today. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't know you as Savior. There is is no way around this. There's no one but Jesus who can save. And I pray, Lord, that someone would open, have their eyes open to that gospel today. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.